Hello, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, thank you to this event on uninvited arrivals uh, that is organized by the LEC Literary Festival. Uh, I will start by saying a few words uh, about the event, and actually I will just concentrate on the title. Uh, the title is Uninvited and Arrivals. I will start by talking a little bit about the second term, the term arrivals. Um, so we are talking about, in this event, in different ways, about those who arrive. They arrive at the shores of Greece and Italy, coming through different routes of the Mediterranean, up from various countries countries of North Africa and beyond, but also countries of the, the Middle East, from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so, people who flee war are part of those who arrive. And we could have called this event the refugee crisis event, but we decided um, that we don't really think this is an appropriate term to use for an event like ours. And this is because we don't uh, like to use the word crisis in this context. Uh, crisis suggests uh, an event that happen, uh, happens uh, suddenly, unexpectedly. Um, and this one is not a sudden and unexpected event. People um, have been coming for a long time, and even though in smaller numbers. Also, people have uh, been recently fleeing war, and we knew for a number of years now um, that they were fleeing their own countries and uh, moving on to neighboring countries and eventually to Europe. So the criterion of suddenness wouldn't apply to this event as a crisis. Um, if we call the event a crisis, we also suggest uh, that somehow it is a peak moment in what is otherwise um, a process of, of normality, of normal uh, living. And that if we somehow take care and contain that event, that we are going to soon return to that normality that was there before. Um, and we know that this is not going to be uh, the case because as long as the war is going on, people will find ways and keep coming. So this problem is not going to go away simply by treating it as a parenthesis that we just need to attack, solve, and uh, do um, uh, away with. Um, so um, that's why we did not decide to call it a, a refugee crisis, um, um, an event about a refugee crisis. Um, and our focus, as I said, is on arrivals. It is actually about telling a story, a particular kind of story, of how those who leave their countries arrive here and how um, they are being met, they are being received by those who they meet when they arrive in the sea, so the Italian um, uh, coastal guard, and 
uh, inland. So um, uh, network, um, networks of activists on a Greek island of uh, Chios. Uh, so we will focus on a journey and tell that story um, in a particular way. Um, we will start with uh, Ruben, Ruben Anderson, who's our first speaker. Uh, uh, Ruben is um, an LSE Fellow at the Department of International uh, uh, Development. He's an anthropologist who's working with issues of migration, uh, security, and borders. He's also the award-winning author of uh, Illegality.inc. Uh, and um, he will give us, I think, a broad overview of human mobility as a problem of human trafficking. And he will tell us uh, the facts of that problem, um, how uh, it in fact makes possible the difficult crossings that these uh, people uh, have to undertake and which would otherwise uh, not be uh, uh, possible, not in legal uh, uh, terms anyway, but also what the consequences uh, of this um, um, uh, situation of uh, human trafficking is for them and what implications uh, it has for those who are subjected to it, to its forces. So then the floor uh, goes to uh, Dr. Uh, Pierluigi Musaro, who is um, uh, both an associate professor at the University of Bologna and an LSE fellow here at the Department of Media uh, and Communication. Um, but he is also himself um, uh, uh, very act uh, involved in a very activist way. He's actually set up uh, an NGO that is uh, dealing with um, uh, questions of uh, refugee hospitality in, uh, in Italy, uh, in Bologna. And what he's going to be talking about today is, as I said, the um, Italian um, Navy... Uh, that participated in the uh, uh, sea rescue, search and uh, rescue uh, military operation of Mare Nostrum. And uh, he will be looking at their online material and the videos of uh, rescue operations that they took in order to tell us how exactly the Italian Navy tells its own story about uh, 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 how they meet those who arrive. And finally, our third and final speaker, uh, Dr. Miria Georgiou, is a, um, an associate professor at the Department of Media and Communications here at LSE. And uh, she will move from the crossings onto um, the island of Chios, which is one of the first uh, um, uh, European uh, lands, if you like, that uh, 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 those who arrive um, uh, meet and uh, are hosted by uh, on their way to uh, Europe, uh, to inland Europe, uh, the, the continental Greece, uh, and then the Balkans. Um, so uh, what she's going to be talking about is some observations uh, around our own fieldwork there last December, uh, in particular in relation to a network of an, uh, of, uh, an informal network of activists, uh, of pensionists, students, working people who um, um, dedicated a, a large part of, the, of their daily activity, sometimes actually um, uh, working round the clock in order to cook for, to, to, uh, to wash and provide clothing to, uh, to bring into their homes, offer tea, offer 
food to refugees um, just before the registration process um, as they are there waiting perhaps to leave for some destination, either uh, Greece or perhaps the hotspots before they return uh, back. Uh, So... um, this is really the story we're going to tell. It is not the story that we can tell from the perspective of refugees. Um, we, we haven't talked to refugees. Our work is not such that actually involves um, um, uh, listening to their own accounts, not yet in any case. But it is an interesting story because it tracks um, a particular uh, uh, trajectory of movement uh, that we hear very little about. We know little about. And... Uh, As these arrivals are not just arrivals, but they are uninvited arrivals, um, at least for for some of us, some of of those who uh, populate and in fact perhaps dominate um, our our own societies, um, let me just focus on that second um, uh, term of our title, um, the term uninvited. The key thing that every speaker today is going to focus on is um, an inherent paradox, an impossible paradox that lies at the very heart of the act of receiving um, those those who arrive. Um, On the one hand, they are greeted with a compassionate uh, humanitarian um, ethos. Um, um, We recognize, and this is very dominant in the rhetoric of, for instance, uh, Chancellor Merkel and um, other uh, a few European leaders. Um, We must save lives. Um, It is terrible that young children die at sea. Um, We need to offer um, refuge and accommodate them in our societies. On the other hand, there is another rhetoric that's uh, tearing uh, Europe apart, uh, which is that these people are simultaneously treated with hostility. Closed borders, uh, violence, humiliation, um, decisions to expel retrospectively, as the case was in Sweden earlier uh, this month, uh, intensified security. Um, So all three presentations uh, focus, as I said, on on, on what at face value might appear as a paradox. Um, and the argument here is that what appears as an impossible paradox is actually fundamental to Europe's approach uh, to, uh, to human mobility and, 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 and those uh, flows. And this approach is built precisely on this duality of humanitarian securitization, on the one hand to acknowledge uh, their right to protection from war, but on the other hand... Um, to protect our own populations from possible security threats. Um, And even though it is important to be able to manage perhaps that duality, it seems that Europe is at the moment failing uh, to do precisely that, which is an important um, uh, and urgent uh, task. So uh, as I finish off and, and give the floor to Ruben, Uh, Let me just say that as we're going to be talking about the different stages of uninvited arrivals, all presentations will be focusing on humanitarian securitization, uh, uh, interrogating, first of all, its ethical basis, uh, what kind of morality respects people's uh, desire for safety, um, yet jeopardizes uh, their lives as they try to reach 
that safety. Um, um, second, it's viability. Is it possible to be sustained for long? Um, and uh, is it not becoming increasingly also primarily about security rather than hospitality um, or, or humanitarian care? And third, the consequences of humanitarian um, securitization, both for those who arrive, but also those who receive them. And without further delay, uh, let me just pass the floor to Dr. Anderson. Thanks for that introduction, Lily, and uh, great to see so many here. Uh, I know it's a, it's a hot topic, a lot is happening, and it's a very tense political situation in Europe right now, so I think it's, it's a good time to have this uh, debate and discussion uh, around this, this uh, very urgent uh, issue. So I'm just starting here simply by showing you a map to give you a bit of the lie of the land or what's happening at and beyond Europe's borders today. This map is, is known as the IMAP. It's developed by international organizations in Europe in collaboration with the EU border agency Frontex, and it has been done, carried out, uh, mapped out in several iterations for the past decade, and it shows this array of, of uh, entry routes into Europe from Asia, Afghanistan, uh, Turkey, Syria, and so on, from Sub-Saharan Africa, which are the routes I've been looking at in my work, from West Africa in particular, and sort of lays them out for the purposes of <laughs> gathering intelligence on migratory routes, of tracking and tracing the movement of people as they arrive towards European shore, and of trying them to intervene way before people arrive at our borders, where this humanitarian, human rights-based response uh, often kicks off, the type we heard about just now from Lily. So I'm showing you this simply to, on the one hand, to give you a sense of the bewildering array of routes and methods being used today, the, the large amount of pathways existing by land and sea into the, uh, towards external borders of the European Union. I also show it to you simply to highlight the big effort that have already been put into the effort of tracking and tracing and controlling people's movement preemptively way before uh, people arrive at the borders, over more than a decade now, over many years now. <coughs> and the fact that those efforts have clearly not worked as planned. We are facing now uh, what's often referred to as uh, an emergency, a crisis uh, of unprecedented proportions. We're facing uh, higher death rates. We have seen uh, 100,000 people arrive so far this year across the Mediterranean, and of course more drama, more panic in European capitals. So what's going wrong here really? What's, what's not working out despite these efforts put into uh, tracking and controlling movement at the borders of Europe? Uh, so I'm going to base what I say here a bit on my, on my own work, which I say, as I said has been focused on routes from West Africa <coughs> towards southern Europe, and in particular Spain following border guards, migrants on the routes, aid workers and other groups involved in this work of, of making the borders of Europe, if you will. I try to show really how these efforts to close off the borders, to fight migration, to secure, protect external borders of the European Union have uh, repeatedly failed on, the, failed on their own terms over the past two, three decades. And I'm really going to go into a bit of detail about the mechanisms of that, of that process how, it, in particular, how it's failing, but also how it's succeeding in some very important ways. And in the first slide, I just gave you a bit of a geographical overview. Here, I'm just giving a bit of a chronology. 
As Lily said, uh, the term crisis is really a misnomer for what's going on today, uh, simply because this was well anticipated. We should have known that this was going to happen. And part of the reason for that is that we've seen repeatedly, at least over the past decade, border crises, one after the other, in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, uh, taking place. And I'm just listing a few of them here, a few of the more uh, prominent ones. And each time we've seen more of the same response. We've seen politicians press the emergency button, uh, rolling out a border security response, usually, combined with some humanitarian elements. I'll go into that later, and Pierluigi will talk more about it as well. Uh, and we see then how this crisis had tended to perpetuate. We see more and more of it uh, happening as we go along. Of course, combined with simply the... the, the, the the war in Syria, the conflict in Libya, all these other external reasons why we're seeing so many people arriving today. It's worth backtracking chronologically a little bit more to the 1990s to really understand the mechanisms of what's going on from the official side, uh, the official response to these movements. In the 1990s, we saw the rollout of the Schengen Agreement for Free Movement within Europe, open borders, uh, the abolishing of, of uh, border controls among European states, one of the big achievements, I would say, of, of the European project. But along with that went a reinforcement of the external borders of the European Union. To a large extent, for political and symbolic reasons, we want to show here, we are, here, here are we, uh, the Europeans, and here is our here, uh, this is our border, this is what we have to jointly uh, secure somehow. We saw a strengthening of the migration regimes of southern European states, suddenly visa requirements for North Africans in the early 1990s, which led to the first migrant boats arriving across the Strait of Gibraltar and into southern Italy. The, the closure of legal pathways into Europe for North Africans <laughs> it was accompanied by the opening of irregular pathways of appearance of migrant boats. And ever since then, we've seen this uh, border security response, a border security model, as I, as I call it, uh, rolled out to, each, to deal with each successive new entry method, entry attempt, a crisis at the borders. Uh, and it's increasingly uh, perpetuating itself, as I think we've seen in, uh, over the past uh, two years, and the range of new uh, initiatives are being put forward on almost a, a weekly basis. We've had some NATO deployments between Turkey and Greece, of our common European border guard systems being rolled out, uh, building on uh, border agency Frontex work, uh, whose budget is swiftly increasing. We see more and more technologies being rolled out, drones, satellites, uh, uh, patrolling vessels, other surveillance systems, radars, sensors, fences, all of this being produced at a, as a faster and faster rate. Only a few weeks ago, we heard about uh, biometrics, uh, apps that could track and trace people. Again, coming back to that first map, well before, the arrive at our borders, so resurrecting that idea of preemptively stopping people. It's just continuing on all these various technological and policing and military fronts. We're seeing more and more investment in a border security model. It's a complex model. It's not simply about uh, presenting... Uh, this uh, hard phase of, of, of uh, the uninvited, if you will, or, or trying to stop and hold people. We often hear these developments couched in a language of saving people, of uh, saving them often from smugglers or from traffickers, a term that's often erroneously applied to refer to human smuggling, where you pay someone to get across a difficult border, trafficking 
is, is a very different type of crime. It's to bring someone against their will for the purposes of exploitation to a destination country. That's not usually, or in, the most, uh, in most cases at the border series, that's not what's going on. These are people <laughs> who want to get onto these boats, and we should ask ourselves why they want to do so. But instead, we've seen an increased focus on patrols that are aimed to uh, intercept and, and, and halt the boats and to deal with the smugglers in a, in, a, in, a, in a very simplistic fashion that has, in fact, helped to strengthen the drama or, 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 or reinforce the drama at the borders. So I should just give uh, an example from uh, some of these drama at the borders. This is from uh, bits of, uh, of, of the European borderlands where I've carried out my fieldwork. This is a Spanish enclave of Melilla in North Africa, one of two tiny EU territories on the North African coast. Sorry, I'm just going to flick back and forth between these pictures up here. Melilla is around here, uh, and uh, this other Spanish enclave of Ceuta is at the Strait of Gibraltar. These are these EU territories, Schengen territories, are surrounded by tall fences built to keep people out. Uh, EU funded, by the way. And as we see in this picture from a year or two ago, it's not quite working as planned. We see uh, dozens and dozens of undocumented sub-Saharan migrants clambering onto the fence, holding onto it, straddling across it, waiting to, to descend. And once they do descend, these Spanish border guards stand in wait to expel them informally back into Moroccan hands, where they will again be expelled to the Algerian borderlands, a very dangerous territory indeed. So here we see really the security response in full bloom, the, the fences you know from Hungary, from Greece, from Bulgaria. And this is a, a sort of clear-cut security response. But it's in constant interaction, and again we'll hear more about that later on from Pierluigi, with what's going on at the sea borders. In a very simple, simple fashion, because the closure of these borders, the land borders, much safer, you can walk across in Syria, there's no fence, and that's indeed what the first Africans arriving into these enclaves did in the 1990s. They just walked across. It wasn't a big drama. But then you build a fence, and they all come at once, charging at the fence, and we have a crisis. But we also have a displacement effect to the sea route. Uh, coming back again, looking back here, to our border crisis, we saw an early such European border crisis in 2005 when these fences were stormed, as the media call it, by these migrants. New fences were built, more policing collaboration between Spain and Morocco was rolled out, and the corollary of that, the consequence of that, was the opening of a new route to the Spanish Canary Islands, much, more, much longer, much more dangerous, 1,500 kilometers away from West Africa. It was hardly used before, and now suddenly, as a displacement effect from that safer route across the Strait of Gibraltar and these tiny enclaves, we now have a much more dangerous situation where we need a humanitarian response, a very costly, very uh, advanced humanitarian response, which was indeed rolled out by Spain. Uh, there we see the border guards and the humanitarian guys working, in that case, together with the EU border agency Frontex and African forces to preemptively stop people leaving the African coastline in the first place. And the motivation behind that was humanitarian. We do it for their own good, to avoid them risking their lives. Or we send them back to the African coastline to avoid them as a deterrent, to, to, to make them think again and not risk their lives in that fashion. And we see that same logic repeated along the Italian coasts, and now 
with the NATO deployment in Greece, Turkey. The idea is, well, we send them back to Turkey. Let's forget about all the political difficulties in that and the legal difficulties. But the idea is, if we do manage to do that, we will then deter people and not have them risk their lives in this fashion. So we're seeing really behind Behind this humanitarian response, uh, the border security model lurking again. They are the same actors, the same methods and means in a way, uh, and the same uh, motives and, and objectives going on here. We also see again a similar displacement effect, because the more we put in place this type of deterrence-based approach, again, routes move somewhere else. We've seen it uh, in Turkey, where routes have moved from the Bulgarian and Greek land borders to the Mediterranean. We've seen it in Libya, and we've seen it again in West African case, where Spain put in place these patrols, and then people started to move through the Sahara Desert instead, again towards Libya, towards Morocco, back to these fences and so on. Uh, people were not simply going to stop moving because there was an obstacle in their path. Uh, so what we're seeing, uh, and this is really uh, an important uh, point, I suppose, it, it's really the reinforcement of this border security model, rather than triggering a rethink among those successive crises, rather than a reinforcement of the same model. Politicians are pressing the same button again and again. Security forces, the defense sector, are of course happily helping them to do so. And here we just see a vision of what that entails. This is from several years ago, by the way, and it's already becoming reality. And a sort of visual exercise by border border agencies to show how we can surveil and monitor the open seas, African, Asian coastlines, European coastlines, and so through this technological mastery, simply make people stop moving in that fashion. Uh, it's a dream. It's not happening. It's something we, we, we're realizing by now. Uh, but really the important thing here is that we've created a market in border security that keeps feeding perversely on its own failures because every new uh, route as you close down a route, you create a displacement effect, you create riskier entry methods, well then you have uh, a demand for a new security solution on that new <coughs> route. Uh, when the fence doesn't do its job anymore, well then you build a taller fence. Or when people move away from the land border to the sea, well then we can put in place a patrol. Or why not a new surveillance system? Or a NATO deployment as we have now. Uh, we're seeing a strengthening of this border security market on the back of its own failure generating successes, significant successes for many sectors involved here. The border agencies strengthening their funding position, resource base, power status. Uh, the defense sector uh, coming up with new solutions, new types of control, the biometrics I talked about, radar systems, fences. Um, neighboring states become enrolled, as we know now in Turkey, in a three billion euro deal to help seal the borders. They're not quite happily playing along. But the idea, again, is to... to basically bribe them into collaborating, uh, and that's been going on for years in Libya, in Morocco, in West Africa, and elsewhere, and they have found a perfect bargaining chip in this type of uh, threat-based scenario around migration that Europe is so keen on exporting. So we're seeing a vicious cycle here, where the failure of controls is generating a demand for ever more of the same toxic medicine. So what to do? I'm sorry, this is quite depressing. <laughs> and <laughs> what can we do about this? Uh, I think we can start, uh, as an anthropologist, I've tried myself to start from the ground up and to, to really talk to the people on the front lines. And often the first people to criticize what's going on are the border guards themselves. They're really ambivalent about their mission. They know 
that if they put in place these funds, if they patrol these funds, their colleagues at sea will have to deal with dragging people out of the sea, um, out, of the, out of the waters. Um, they know that, that uh, a new rail system will push routes further out to sea, so they will have to do even longer excursions with, with their boats and, and may not catch the people on time. This is very traumatic, it's difficult, it's dangerous. They are in that ambivalent position of institutionally being the beneficiaries of, of this type of border security model, but personally having to deal with the consequences. And of course, the aid workers, the volunteers, the migrants, the refugees are even more aware of these contradictions. And in fact, as I came to, to focus on these border security markets, industry, as I call it in my work, I really took my lead from migrants themselves in, in West Africa who told me that, well, in illegal migration, there's lots of money to be made. They saw all these actors. They saw the, not just the border guards, the defense companies, but also the NGOs, the local politicians, everyone with a finger in the pie of uh, the fight against migration. I should finish now soon. Uh, just to, to try to end on a cheery note, what can we do about this? Uh, I think the first thing that, that could be done uh, is really to learn from other failed wars. Uh, just like the war on drugs in many ways, uh, which I think we know now is a destructive, costly, and not very effective exercise. We're having a bit of a shift going on there in official thinking. In fact, even here at LSC, there was a big report on it just a, a week or two back. Well, learn a bit from that debate, because the fight against migration is really a parallel in many ways. Similar displacement effects to new routes, similar generations of risk and professionalization of, of uh, criminal networks and so on. So as in the war on drugs, as in, in the, the, the issue of drugs, we can start to apply a harm reduction approach to at least cut, cut some of those most dangerous uh, uh, measures now in place. The raise the wire at the fences is a good start, for instance. Or create some legal pathways, an incentive for people to engage in res risky behavior. This is basic, but it doesn't exist at present. Mm -hmm. uh, in the long run, though, I think we need, we need to build towards a global approach of mobility. This is also... It should be quite obvious. We need to learn to cooperate and to share responsibility, coming back to our key term here. But what, in fact, we're seeing here is a constant shifting away of responsibility. That's also why this model is so effective, because we can always blame someone else. It's going to become someone else's problem as we shift the route from Hungary to Croatia, from Bulgaria to Greece, from Sweden to Denmark, what have you. It's always going to be someone else's problem. So we need to start at the other end, build incentives for genuine cooperation, and crucially, reformulate collaboration with neighboring states. You're now exporting this threat scenario to neighboring states who are happily using it <laughs> against, against Europe. Uh, but instead, we need to start normalizing, de-escalating, building a very different long-term approach to mobility. And of course, politically, all this is, is, is a pipe dream at present. It's not happening. Uh, so where can we start? I think one way of starting, again, coming back to the war on drugs, is start to assess the true costs of this title border security model. Because what are the costs? We're seeing dented tourism, we see effects on legitimate uh, cross-border travel and trade, we're seeing uh, trampled crops in hung on Hungarian borders, for instance, we're seeing, uh, of course, huge costs of rescues, humanitarian uh, operations and so on. We need to start identifying those costs and start to build coalitions of actors who are now dealing with those costs, shouldering those costs and risks as a starting point towards a different model in the future, I think. Thank you.
Thank you very much, uh, Ruben. And, and now we'll hear from Pierluigi Musero. Yes, thanks very much Lili, for inviting me and thanks Ruben also for introducing a little bit my, my talk. And I think that my talk is quite complementary to the toxic medicine that Ruben just introduced. Because as Ruben was saying, and I think that you, you haven't mentioned this number, but in the last 20 years there are more than 25,000 people dying in the Mediterranean Sea and I come from the south of Italy, and when I go to swim there, I can promise you that I think about that, and not only me. But it means that Europe has become the deadliest migration destination in the world. Nevertheless, most of these lives lost during migration remain invisible and unreported, except when big tragedies happen and images like this one of Ilan Kurdi become icons, and so we can see the, this kind of picture in the medias. But long before this picture, which I think last September became very famous, images of another migrant tragedy, and tragedy is interesting because it's another word that we use as crisis without thinking about that, had emerged in the world media, shocking Europe's conscience and impacting on our policies. I'm talking of the two shipwrecks, of Lampedusa on 3 and 11 October two years ago, two and a half years ago, which resulted in the death of more than 600 migrants. As the photograph of Ailan, the iconic images of the ship underwater and of the coffins, it was the first time that we have seen coffins, Line up in a Sicilian warehouse were ubiquitous in the media, prompting concern by a wider array of politicians that Europe had lost its humanity. The Mediterranean Sea was described as a symmetry and politicians declared they were profoundly shocked by scenes of coughing. The, the guy you see here is the, the prime minister of that time. And with him, Barroso and many other European politicians were to Lampedusa. So on the way of the shock, the Italian authorities declared the day of national mourning gave honorary citizenship to the dead while the living were enclosed in a detention camp, and I'm not joking, it's true, and launched Mare Nostrum, a military humanitarian operation in the Mediterranean. Now, I don't know if you are aware that Mare Nostrum means our sea, but maybe it's not clear to whom it refers, our sea. Because Mare Nostrum was the Roman name for the Mediterranean, which was again used by Mussolini to frame the fascist propaganda about the Italian lake. That time the British were there. So, you know, we were fighting for the Italian lake. So the possessive hour projects the Mediterranean as a European space, but it refers ambiguously to both Italy and Europe. So I will focus here on the humanitarian securitization of Mare Nostrum, as Lily was saying, on how the humanitarian element in favor of migrants coexists with the military logic of protection of our European interests against migrants. Interesting is the fact that since the start of Mare Nostrum, images of the dramatic rescue operation in the sea and death at border have more and more visibility 
in the media, I mean, while until October 2013, it was very, very difficult to see images in the high sea. Most of the images were like mass of people in the border, on the land. So with Mare Nostrum, Italian Navy, Italian Army, they started for the first time to shoot their own photographies, their own videos, and to tell to the medias, to newspapers, what was happening in the Mediterranean. But these images, these kind of images, and you can see also the brand of the Marina Militare, of the Italian Navy, we only exceptionally see death. This scene is more about rescue operation. So here we see how the institutional framing of this prolific production contributed to feed what has been called the spectacle of the border. Here I'm referring to Simmel and Guy Debord, and I think also as Ruben was saying, here the border is not a physical fence. Here the border is a symbolic and political fence, which is enacted and performed as a discursive or emotional landscape of social power. What happened that before Mare Nostrum, media's attention was on the frontierization process of Lampedusa. Lampedusa was renamed the border of Europe. Then the public communication produced by Italian army moved into the open sea, the spectacle of the border, and re-articulate the relationship between the humanitarian and the military aspect of the intervention. As we can see, for example, in the home page of the Italian Navy website, both the military and the humanitarian effort are reflected in the statistics. Here you can see the importance of the numbers, for example, which is part of the, man of the management of the crisis. During Mare Nostrum, the Navy press room launched release, press releases every day, often inviting the public to follow the news on Twitter. And we can see through the images how the national spectacle of surveillance, policing and border control that Ruben was just describing coexist with the cosmopolitan spectacle of rescue and salvation. So Mare Nostrum speaks the language of combating human smuggling and potential terrorists while rescuing lives and protect migrants. You can see this, all these images and it's quite interesting really that we always see the brand of the Italian Navy on the images were distributed and then of course they influenced the public perception of what was happening in the Mediterranean. So what about the representational regime? Did media employ to describe it? Here you can see that there is this kind of asymmetrical relation. There is, I don't know, like the spectator is positioned as the possible savior while the the rescued are more bodies, are the other. This relationship is depicted through the asymmetry between heroes, the crew, and victims that is placed within what Boltanski calls the topics of sentiment, where we can see that there is a human suffering that evokes gratitude towards the benefactors and tenderheartedness toward the beneficiaries of the exchange. And practice Practices and discourses of care, aid and assistance are emphasized here to reframe the operation as humanitarian national benevolence, while the victimization of refugees, and you can see especially children and women, as usual, transform them in objects of pity. 
We see grateful migrants just rescued, receiving food, parcel, and water, while the concept of security essentially remains on the backstage. Now, let me show you the official video of the operation, which I think is quite interesting. I will show you only a few minutes of this video. Okay. I think it's quite clear, but I want to stress like the emergency imaginary that you were saying, how it contributes to frame the Mediterranean as a sort of humanitarian battlefield, a sort of war on migrants. We are invited to read the military security dispositive of Mare Nostrum by the moral voice of the Pope, which is quite interesting. And again, the happy end of this last frame presents us with an intensely moralistic context, which is not placed within any historical political framework. Why, why these people are in the high sea? You know, all the communication of the Italian Navy is about how, never about why. The Mediterranean appears as a place in which the state of exception takes place and migrants are reduced to bare life, to quote Agamben. As such, this paternalistic spectacle constructs what Lily defined a hierarchy of pity, which reframed the military logic as an affair of humanitarian concern, something that Fasseno defined a compassionate repression. This is particularly evident, but in this case I'm not showing you the, the video, but you can go on YouTube and find. This is an Italian docudrama produced by the Italian Navy and broadcasted in prime time by the Italian National Television. I think that the title is quite elo eloquent. It means Katia's choice 80 miles south of Lampedusa. Who is Katia? Katia is the young first female captain of the Italian vessel, she is the protagonist of this docudrama, which chronicled the last two months of the Mare Nostro operation. My parents were watching this docudrama. Along the seven episodes, we see how the Italian Navy have, have now become nurses, and not just soldiers, in providing safe haven for those they help. You can see that next to security scenes that depict the violent, brutal smugglers, there are scenes in which a crew member begins to cry as he is recalling the dead bodies he must recover from the churning waters. In another sea, we see Katya and the crew washing away the fears of the people they, they saved. So, like other humanitarian texts, the short serial TV works to construct a community of viewers that are encouraged to identify with Katya and their crew. Here we don't see militaries. Here we see social workers with guns. It's an attitude in line with, again, what Lily defined the rise of the empathetic soldier himself. Here we can see like a sort of civilianization of the military. But, and I'm, I'm going to conclude, let me move, because we, we Italians, we like to, to, to describe very well in a, in a very nice way how we are. So let me move from a docudrama to a real drama performed by our Italian Prime Minister, Matteo Renzi, just a few months ago, when the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon came to visit our parliament. These are the, the, the affirmation of Matteo Renzi. <coughs> he say in the parliament, welcoming Ban Ki-moon, Italy that welcomes you is the country of the Italian officers who become nurses to deliver babies in the ships on the Mediterranean. 
It is an Italy of which we are proud. When reality can be more powerful than <laughs> fantasy. To conclude, let me be clear about a point. I'm not saying that militaries or politicians in this case deliberately manipulate communication by denying us the truth. In the last month, I had the chance to interview several militaries in Italy who took part in the operation, and I really saw how passionate they are about their job. As one of them told me, he told me like, yes, Pierluigi, but please, like, consider the despair of these people. Consider when you are there and then they are in distress. I think that they are human beings in danger, and in danger, and if you have a little bit of, of empathy, of course you want to save these lives. And I agree with him. My point is a different one. Despite the emotional framing, the empathic identification with the heroes or the innocent victims, we must be aware that solidarity can be found only if we understand the political, financial and ethical interests in the world outside the frame. The complex issue of migration, and it is complex, is here constructed as a tragic game of fame, of fate. The, this kind of communication translates the very notion of human into life to be rescued and transposes the human rights discourse into securing migrants' lives at sea. The good border spectacle denies migrants' agency to decide to move. It hides the exclusionary mechanism of the visa system. It obscures the European migration policies at large. I want to conclude in stark opposition to this flaming, reminding what happened in the last month. The collective march of refugees, asylum seekers, across the Balkans during last summer has rendered the agency of migrants themselves highly visible, as you can see here, exposing the crucial role they play in challenging existing governance structures. So this is the dark side of the spectacle of the border. As we have seen, and this is my last one, people on the move challenged the subject position of the helpless victims and reasserted their agency, their social and political identities, their hopes and dreams, their capacity to aspire and to choose their own destiny. Thank you. After Pierluigi, it is uh, Miria Georgiou, and we are now on the island of Kios. Okay, thank you. <coughs> Pierluigi, through the case of the Italian Navy, I think spoke of the ways in which media representations have constructed an, a narrative or have reproduced a narrative of agentless refugees, but also their fateful drama. But he concluded, and his cliffhanger where I'm uh, hanging from, is what I would call a humanistic claim. So a humanistic claim, I think, is that claim where we see and we recognize refugees as people who share our common humanity. 
and invites an ethos of care, for which I'm going to be talking about here. One that, in this sense, challenges the dehumanizing ethos that Pierluigi was just talking about. And that narrative of military securitization and perhaps media securitization that may save the people in C, but at the same time it regulates and excludes these people from the narrative of our humanity or our in Europe. And of course the our is always in quotation marks. So I want to pick up from this cliffhanger, this last point that uh, Pierluigi made, that humanistic claim, as I say, and reflect a bit more systematically in the next few minutes in what happens when refugees and migrants are actually present in the spaces of communication that inform humanitarian politics and action. So in this context, in the context of this discussion, I examine the spaces of communications that inform and to an extent shape politics of action and care outside and sometimes in parallel and sometimes antagonistically to the institutions that we have seen of the media, of humanitarianism, of state and the military. And more precisely, I'm looking at informal networks of solidarity, what I call informal networks of solidarity, at Europe's borderland. And through an investigation of their connectivities, I identify or I try to identify potentials, but also I hint to some of the limitations of a politics of care that depends on mutuality, participation, and dissent. Basically, all the things that perhaps identify the substance, both Ruben and Pierluigi. So I locate my contribution to a different geographical space than Pierluigi, the Greek border, but also the European border, and in a, a slightly different temporal frame, the temporal frame of the right now, as things happen at Europe's borderland, but also as things happened at the moment of transformation of the European management of the crisis. As we see, for example, the category, the recognized category of Afghan people as refugees suddenly being redefined, that perhaps these are not refugees anymore, but rather they are migrants. Thus, I also talk about refugees and migrants together because these categories are very much constructed in our narratives of the crisis more than as objective categories. So I'm drawing from research, as Lily mentioned earlier, research that we have done together in the Greek island of Chios on the borderland of Europe, an island that receives on a daily basis people arriving from the Turkish shore. So um, the borderland, the islands, the Greek islands close to Turkey at the moment, are the terrains where policies of securitization are rehearsed and tested as we speak. As we can see, for example, in the case of um, the redefinition of who is responsible for Europe's borders and for Greek borders, but also in the criminalization of acts of care that fall outside the framework of humanitarian securitization. There are new laws introduced that actually can lead to prosecution of groups that support refugees and migrants, but which are not recognized by the police or the humanitarian uh, collaborative of, uh, offer and the military. So the border is not only a point of human crossing of control and governmentality, but it's also a point of encounter, of encounters and unforeseen, unplanned, and often undesired constellation. And as such, the border shapes 
subjectivities, including subjectivities of solidarity that I want to focus on. The border, as we have seen already, is a space of intense securitization where the fate of those who arrive is decided, literally decided when they are, it's decided by the authorities if they are refugees, if they are not refugees, if they should be stopped or if they should be allowed to continue their journey. But it's also a space, precisely because it's a transient space, it's a fragile space, where we can see the limits of securitization. This is where they are tested and challenged, not least in what I refer to as a progressive politics of the border. And this progressive politics of the border, I'm talking in relation to those informal networks of solidarity that exist on the ground, and they're constituted by locals and not local, non-locals, groups such as those, for example, that cook warm food uh, for the new arrivals in an island where there is now an extensive system, an organized system of international NGOs, the only groups that cook food for migrants and refugees are those informal networks, people who provide uh, dry clothes to all the people who come wet out of the sea at the first point of their arrival, and also professionals like lawyers who, are, who exist in informal networks and keep an eye for arrest or prosecutions of the new arrivals or possible violations of human rights. So this whole range of action takes uh, place at time, and it takes uh, 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 at the space of the border, but it takes also place at time of intense pressures, not least because of the growing criminalization of these acts. So there is something important about the networks uh, in question in the context of today's discussion, not only in regards to their perseverance or in relation to their effective action, but mostly in terms of the ethical possibilities they present to us within a broader politics of care and solidarity. So these networks function very differently to the formal humanitarian organizations, the United Nations, uh, Red Cross, and so on, that exist at the border. But unlike those organizations... Um, the, the informal networks of solidarity and their actions are direct, uh, are direct effect, their mere existence is the direct effect of their encounters with refugees and migrants. What motivates the volunteers is not a mandate or international law, but a not a distinct political agenda, but rather a shared experience of certain wrongs associated with bordering politics, of the experience of new arrivals they encounter and they're exposed to. As informal structures, those networks of solidarity establish and depend on a range of modalities of connectivity to develop certain and effective communication and action. Importantly, I think, and I will try to show these connections that spill across interpersonal and digital communication networks do not only function as organizational tools, they are not only there to make things work, but rather I think they are part of the logic and the way that these networks, these groups of people and activists and volunteers work and think about solidarity and enact solidarity and develop the ethics of solidarity. In the next few minutes, I want to focus on three elements of these informal networks of uh, solidarity's connectivity, the different ways that they connect, which are parallel to communication systems 
uh, as those that we have seen of the institutional structures of communication, such as the media, the military, Frontex, and humanitarian organizations. And in their limitations and preoccupations, I argue, those connections present and represent some glimpses of an ethics of care beyond militarization and beyond the logic of the containment of the crisis. So the firm, uh, first kind of connections that emerge in the midst of um, uh, uh, this moment is um, connections that relate to that moment of the encounter that I referred to already. There was a phrase that we heard again and again. There was a phrase that was universally shared by those that we spoke to. When we asked them, why are you doing it? Why are you helping those arriving? The answer was always the same. It could be me. It could have been us. And as one of the collective kitchen, one of the groups that in question, the collective kitchen activists, put it on an online article written in the local vernacular dialect, quote, because you want to see the warmth in their eyes with dry clothes, a warm plate of food, because every time one drowns in the sea, you lose one of your own people. So what goes on here? The informal networks of solidarity are, are constituted in response to the encounter with strangers and their subjectivities, the subjectivities of their members, is constituted within those networks. The moment of it could be me, these are our people, is not only a moment of empathy, it's actually a moment of identification with a stranger within a framework of vulnerability. The vulnerable is not alien to those who speak, as they become engaged with the people close by when they struggle to get out of the water, when they express their relief, when they embrace their loved ones. Identification, of course, has its own problems. But what it highlights is the importance of the co-presence as a moment of possibility for seeing strangers not as others, but as members of a shared humanity for making subjectivities, not narrow media representations of said categories, the refugee, the victim, or the terrorist, the cultural other on the one hand, and the European and the other on the other hand. The connection that the encounter of the border enables is the moment when an ethics of mutuality perhaps become possible. It is a moment that challenges this binary between us as those who help and those who are helpless and victims, because precisely at that moment, the, uh, the activists, the volunteers, also see the refugees and migrants not only as people without agency, but also people who take control or try to take control of their own fate. A second element of these uh, uh, networks of connection and the connectivity relates to how these groups present and engage with digital networks. So physical co-presence and the physical encounter is very important here, I think, in building the, the imaginary, the space of imagination and the space of action of solidarity. But there is something that spills also within the digital spaces. Of course, everybody is online. Of course, most are on Facebook. Updates on arrival, on life and death, actions, cooking, legal cases are regular almost daily. Responses and supportive messages are almost instant. Uh, people who are on the island and beyond constantly are hooked on the updates that we see on social media. So the logic of connectivity 
uh, and the tools and the language of the media are widely adopted by these networks of solidarity, who are very well aware, and in many ways they manipulate themselves in their own ways, the power of the media. But there is something also missing from the active digital presence of most activists. There's something missing from their digital connectivity. And that's why my imagery is not as effective and captive, perhaps, as Pierre Luigi's. So the images that are missing, the narratives uh, that are missing here, is those of suffering and of the masses of refugees crossing borders. They are not there. The informal networks of solidarity in question, they are very aware perhaps they're very media literate about the ambivalent role of the media, of mediation. And while being part of media uh, environments, they sit uncomfortably within the sensationalization of the crisis and the suffering other. Thus, in most cases, participants in these networks stay away from photographing themselves. We've seen them in the field photographing those arriving. Or if they do, they definitely avoid to represent them as the mass. Only exceptionally, as in the case of one of the residents of a fishing village who works as a portal, as a human portal to information on Facebook, we see the reappearance again and again of images of children. But every image is an image, perhaps what I would call an individual portrait. They're usually smiling children, perhaps, as Lily thinks, uh, a symbol of innocence and hope. So a contradictory position to be, no doubt, actors who are part of the network, but also challenge its ethics and representation of the spectacle of suffering, as Lily would say. We see these uh, networks being connected, but also being experimenting with the networks. The digital networks try to appropriate them and introduce a, a different way of thinking about the network. And within that thinking, I think what they're doing is promoting not only an ethos, but also a practice of participation instead of representation, let alone a representation of suffering. And I started uh, uh, thinking about the different uh, connections and networks of connection within uh, uh, people engaged in acts of solidarity by focusing on the new. The new is that encounter, that new moment that is enabling as people receiving those uh, who are arriving are, uh, are engaging with new, um, uh, are exposed perhaps to new ethical challenges and new politics. But I started from the new and I want to finish in a way with the old. The potentials and limitations, I think, of these informal networks of solidarity derive to a large extent from the same story, from the same context, the history and the present of power and knowledge that is on one hand generating because they draw from histories of solidarity and social movement history, and on the other hand they are also limiting because these people continue to function within context of nationalism, Eurocentrism, and the actual militarization of the border. So in simple words, the people who we met are committed and continue to support refugees and migrants, but at the same time, they sometimes themselves, as the media around them, the other institutions, the other locals, adopt a language of European superiority, or speak of being Greek with that nationalistic pride, and of Greece being that very special place within the regional geography. 
So activists themselves and volunteers struggle with these contradictions, which are not only external, but also internal to their own values and practices. These struggles are often reflected uh, in their digital presence and communications as a representational struggle to define what Muller calls politics of resistance. One minute on that. Their alternative digital media especially turn their voices as a political project, a politics of radical empathy which is as much old as it is new. It is old because it's rooted in the uh, activist commitment to solidarity, but it is new because these actors are also aware of their ambivalent position within a wider system of care and securitization. As one of the activists wrote in a couple, a couple of days ago, and I will conclude here, the state has taken advantage of our actions, feeding, offering warm clothes and blankets to those who need them. But now we stand on the way. Europe is preparing to brutally shut its doors to all refugees. It gives itself to months to save itself from the refugees. We need to be prepared. What will we do? This, of course, is a chapter that is written as we speak. Thank you. Uh, well, we've reached the end uh, of um, our uh, panel presentations. I wanted to thank all three speakers, Ruben, Pierluigi, and Miria, for three very rich but very different presentations from an overview of the histories and trajectories of, of um, uh, human mobility flows to um, the Italian spectacle of the border and to a kind of more reflexive analytical um, account of the ethics of uh, solidarity on a Greek island. Um, we have about 20 minutes for questions. I would like to, to uh, open the floor and to you and uh, ask you to come up with your questions. I would like to request that the first questions are directed to Ruben because um, he would have to leave soon. So he <laughs> might as well answer um, the questions that you have for him now. Yes, please. A general question. Why didn't Angela Merkel say that she'd give 800,000 visas to Syrian refugees to be applied for at embassies in Turkey, Lebanon, wherever? Because, I mean, as far as I know, it's cheaper to get a legal flight to, to pay a smuggler in these states. I don't understand why. She didn't do it, and in general, I'm terribly frustrated with the moralistic either-or of compassion or hostility, and t totally in favour of trying to work out how we do it. Okay, um, yes, you, thank you. I have heard for years and years of uh, roots of whether it's called smuggling or trafficking, trails of bodies across the Sahara long before we started hearing about drownings in the Mediterranean and sometimes fiddling about on the radio, picking up stations. I've heard people from those countries, and obviously I haven't heard every voice from those countries, saying, will the European, Western, rich countries please stop? Well, thank you very much. I think that's an important point. Yeah, you know, you're right. Can we give Ruben the, 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 the time to answer? Because he would have to leave. Yes, thank you. 
Um, any other questions quick? For, uh, shall we take two more very quickly? Just a sentence, if possible. Thank you. Yes. Hi. I wanted to know if the process of how uh, asylum seekers or migrants arrive affects how um, they're represented in, in your work specifically dealing on land and on, on sea as well, how the process of arrival affects how the, their treatment as they arrive. Um, I think maybe Ruben. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Shall we? Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, the first question is a really good point. Why don't we simply put in place a legal safe pathways instead of having people spend thousands of dollars with smuggling networks to perhaps die on the route? And instead, establish an incentive for people to arrive safely in an organized manner so you can spread them across the country, spread them across Europe, plan for their arrival. Uh, sorry. <laughs> instead of, of re this reactive fashion of putting in place a border security response, hoping for the best, and once you get past those obstacles, I don't know if you've seen these cartoons, but there's this sort of cartoon of a fence being moved around in front of this refugee, and once he climbs or jumps across it, then it says, welcome to Europe. <laughs> Why go to all that trouble if, if you can actually find an alternative? And I'm completely with you that our debate, our political and media debate, is so focused on the normative question, so how... What, why are we doing this? Or what should we be doing? Uh, how many should we take in? Rather than thinking of the how, thinking of what can we actually do? I think we need to shift the debate onto that ground-level terrain. It's crucial. And on that ground-level terrain, on how people arrive, yes, it does matter a lot how people arrive. If you arrive across that fence, you are treated as an invader, as a threat, you're beaten back by the border guards. You appear in this, this dark side of the border spectacle, as Pierluigi was saying. You are unwelcome in the most absolute sense. But those same people arriving by sea, are suddenly that object of pity and, and rescues and so on. But of course, if you arrive by a legal pathway, again, there's much higher probability that you'll be treated in, in a much fuller, humane manner of the kind we heard in the last presentation here. So, so there are many different modalities of entry that affect very much how we see the people arriving in Southern Europe. And we shouldn't forget also how certain groups of people are being steered towards certain types of crossings. In the Spanish case, for instance, um, there was for a while asylum uh, uh, application centers uh, at, at the main border crossings, which those who looked Arab might be able to use. Syrians, for instance, whether if you are from sub-Saharan Africa, your only way of entering was the fence. You had situations where West Africans cling on to these fences, screaming, yo asilo, yo asilo, asylum, asylum before being expelled back into Moroccan hands. It's a very differentiated treatment of these groups that's obfuscated, I think, by this very simplistic dichotomy we have, migrants, refugees, who should we accept, who should we not? We need to start looking at those ground-level realities. I'm sorry I had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ruben. So more questions? Um, yes? Thank you. Um, just a quick um, plug. I work for the Ethical Journalism Network, and we recently published a paper looking at how international media cover migration, looking at 14 countries, including Italy, and looking at the European Union as a whole. So I'd encourage everyone here who's interested in this to go online and have a look for that. 
Italy was a very interesting chapter because um, media in Italy got together and created the Charter of Rome, um, which you might be aware of, where they agreed on the terms, um, the legal terms for migrants, refugees, and everything else, as well as trying to collaboratively come up with a more constructive way of dealing with covering the migration issue. So I was wondering, what do you think of that project? Did it work? Could it be expanded into more communications, such as the military? And um, could that be done on a more, perhaps, European level? Um, so that would be my question. Should I answer? Yes, I'm aware of this. Is, you are referring to the Carta di Roma, Chart of Rome. Yes, this is a sort of a deontological uh, code for journalists, and it was elaborated by the Universita La Sapienza in Rome with UNHCR. And yes, I participate also to this, and to be honest, sometimes I, I, I train journalists in, in my university in Bologna, but I think that... In a way, this is very important because the Chart of Rome, which was signed by the National Order of Journalists, it's important because we try to, to work with journalists so then they spread knowledge through the public about what kind of difference there are about, for example, migrants or refugees. They, use, they usually use, for example, profugo. Profugo is something which is in the middle. You know, juridically, it doesn't exist a profugo but or you are migrants or you are refugees. But then I think that this is one level which is very important in order you know, to depict the situation as it is, which means like both sides of the coin. But at the same level, I think that the problem is very, uh, is very complex. Also because, for example, what Ruben was saying now, you know, the difference between migrants and refugees... First of all, UNHCR and also IOM, it's years that is talking about mixed migration flow, which means that migrants and refugees are literally traveling in the same boat, which is interesting because how do you decide? The moment that they are traveling, they are asylum seekers. Then when they stop and they ask, they can declare if they are migrants, and of course they won't say they are migrants, or if they are asylum seekers to get the humanitarian or subsidiary protection or the asylum. This is interesting for two points. One is the causes. So why these people are coming here? Of course, if someone is escaping from the Syria war, maybe has more probability or even more right to become a refugee, but then, like, what is the big difference if someone is escaping from the boring little village in Nigeria and want, like me, to come here, for example, and to stay in London? First of all, I know that is very challenging, but this is a point. And the second point also is about the importance of the narrative. Who decides? if you are a refugee or uh, an economic migrant. A commission which is composed by someone who is the Minister of Interior, the municipality, UNHCR, and another person of the, the police, the Questura. I, I'm talking about, you know, the moment when you, after, theoretically after 60 days, but in Italy it takes 18 months, you are waiting in a limbo, then you finally arrive in front of these four people 
who the image that they have, it's this kind of imaginary. It's like, first of all, if you are a refugee, you have to convince me that you are suffering a lot. First of all, you know, like Syrians, they arrived with cell phone. Yes, they come from Syria, not from the medieval. You know, like. <laughs> and then the second is like, you have to convince them that you are not cheating them. Because in their mind, and I interviewed these people, what they are thinking is like, oh, you are an economic migrant and now you want to convince me, to convince me that you are an asylum seeker. Mm, let's see if you are able to do this. So I think that, you know, this is very important, the chart of Rome, but again, like the problem go beyond the terms that we, the categories. Okay, thank you. We have three questions. I'm going to take the gentleman at the back and then you, you there in the middle. Yes. Uh, just one second. You come after the gentleman at the back. Sorry. Somebody uh, further back. Uh, yeah, my question's for Pierluigi. I come from, coincidentally, precisely the part of Italy where very often you get lots of migrants that touch down on mainland Europe for the very first time. So Messina, Reggio Calabria. And you have this ambiguous compassion where, oh, you know, it's so... It's so sad that these people, these people have no choice but to do what they're doing. And yet it's couched precisely in those terms of, well, at the same time, this is an economically depressed area. Why do we have to help them? So why don't we just let them drown? Now, in, in, your, you know, in, in, in your field work, did you ever come across that rhetoric or that, or that type of narrative within the military, within, within, the, within the Navy, where it would just be simpler, just to, you know, if we don't know about it, it never really happened? where it would just be simpler to allow that to happen, as morbid as that sounds. Um, I understand Europol issued a report yesterday to say that the people smuggling industry was now worth three to four billion euros a year. There seems to be a curious reluctance to crack down on the people smugglers, many of whom are migrants who have made the crossing. Is there any particular reason for that? Okay, uh, yeah, great question. Can we just have those two for now and then um, hopefully take another round of questions? Uh, the first one, I think, was... I think I, I can just answer to this because I think, like, thanks for the comment, I completely agree. And I think that, like, th this question is quite interesting. I was thinking, like, I show you images about the shipwreck of Lampedusa. More than 600 people died, but then... As I read in some documents, the, the police calculated that one travel like this with almost like 600 people on a big fishing boat, it can give in one travel 4 million of euros to a guy who organizes it. Of course, it's not a guy. It's an organization. You know, there is a head. There are people. There are even sometimes minor migrants who just want to go and they are fishermen or children of fishermen and then they accept to drive and whatever, you know. So I think this is part of, of what Ruben was telling. I think that in, the, in, the, in our debate, what is missing is this kind also of cost-benefit. Because we are talking about cost-benefit, about welfare state and jobs and whatever, but we are not talking about why we are feeding these illegal industries. It's like drug, you know. Then you have to, to, to manage this. Otherwise, they are asking for a service 
a service in a market, and if you are not offering this service, someone else will offer the same service, but with a different price and with a different risk. Um, can I just say, uh, I'm not uh, an expert in a field that might uh, adequately answer your question, and I think the person who should have been here and answered that would be Ruben Anderson, um, obviously. Um, but I think he did make a point earlier that perhaps um, doesn't directly uh, answer, but perhaps, perhaps addresses something uh, of what you asked, that the focus at the moment is on protecting our borders and it is on mechanisms of policing who comes in and patrolling the waters uh, rather than on a more um, global effort that requires a, a level of international collaboration that is not there at the moment. Uh, to be able to address those international networks um, at their root. I think that would require, uh, what Ruben said, a different way of thinking about the levels at which we, uh, we intervene um, in, in this issue, intervening on the ground and, and really attacking the roots of, of the problem. We're not doing that at the moment. We're too preoccupied with keeping our own territories um, uh, relatively closed. So it's not really an answer, but at least uh, uh, it gives you a part of a logic of why we don't have an answer and a response to that. So I saw a few more hands. There was um, a car at the back, the very back. Uh, yeah, one, two, yes. Okay, my question is for Miri. Miri spoke about the care, concepts of care and connection. And thinking about the ethics and politics of care, which are present in feminist studies, um, the idea of all of us need care in any, in one time of our life, we will need or we need it. Um, I wonder, uh, I would like to hear you about gender related issues in your field work and, or Lily too. Uh, can I, can we? Would you like to mark? Because I was thinking maybe we can take the one at the back over there. Um, my question is also for Marina. In the work that you're doing, are you analyzing at all a shift in perceptions based on these solidarities and interactions as they happen, meaning... Uh, preconceived notions of who people are before they arrive and how that changes based on the interactions over time and what that might mean sort of for a larger paranoia that we have about migrants. Okay, thank you for both questions. Yes, the gender dimension is very interesting. Um, the, what is interesting when you encounter the people who are traveling is that you very often and most often, and I think perhaps in many ways this moment is different to other times of mass uh, movement of migrants, is that people travel in families a lot. Um, and this creates interesting dynamics. Perhaps this partly answers your question. Uh, when people land to safety in the islands, uh, what you often see is this kind of family units with individuals within those small entities 
playing and reproducing specific roles. This also creates, it's one of the moments of tension and ambivalence in the way that people receiving the, uh, the migrants act and perceive their relation to them or their otherness. Um, you can see uh, certain roles being reproduced uh, at that moment, as you can see them in different, uh, a different context. You know, the male responsibility, the role of the father, the mother, and so on. Um, but um, also what you have uh, at that... So there's nothing particularly different to what you would expect within a context of a traditional family. But it's also perhaps different to what you would expect if you think of a traditional or, or nuclear family when you think about it from London and when you compare it to the Eastern Mediterranean realities. Um, another um, element of that that is important, I think it's that moment uh, that requires further attention, is that ambivalent role of the woman, uh, the woman who arrives, where very often the woman and the mother who arrives um, experience that moment of liberation where everybody else in the family is not present at that moment because that moment is that moment of reaching safety and people, all people, set themselves free in a way from different um, inhibitions. And this also creates a, a, some kind of ambivalence and interpretative framework from, for locals about what that woman is and how this woman, the new arrival, um, appears. What I'm trying to say is not a very coherent story, but it's a very, very complex story trying to answer to both questions. But also what I'm trying to highlight is that these moments are very much located in history and in cultural context. And the same goes for those people who are engaged in acts of solidarity. There's nothing pure in any kind of network, in any kind of moment of reception. So at that moment, both for those arriving and those receiving, those roles, those pre-existing roles and perceptions of role, of gender, of culture, and so on, are being tested, and not always in the same way. And I know it's not a very coherent answer, but it's the only one that I can give for that complexity. I just add to that in relation to the, to the uh, question about perceptions. Um, what we saw in Kios was that the residents of the island um, continued living their lives uh, without really paying much attention to what was going on, uh, either in the registration centers, the UN camp, or the, the, the fishing villages where, where refugees uh, actually arrived. So um, most of the blues the month before Christmas, so people would just go on with Christmas preparations, and then those other few uh, informal networks would really spend all their day and night sometimes receiving refugees and taking care of them. It was like two different worlds, but there was no um, animosity and there was no negative feeling. Uh, what we have seen in other islands w uh, uh, is a different reaction. Um, particularly during the months of the summer, where uh, in, in Kos in particular, people got very upset about the refugees being very visible in areas of the island which uh, were considered touristic. So they felt that, you know, we are suffering from a crisis, from the economic crisis, so uh, this is doing further damage to us. What about us? So there are these competing uh, interests, which, as I said, and as, uh, rather, uh, as Miria said, and I want to emphasize, um, create a very complex situation that differs even within that 
um, very uh, short, um, uh, well, narrow geographical zone that is the, the five Greek islands that uh, accept um, uh, the refugees. Um, and the other point that I wanted to make, which I found very interesting, is that even those people who participated in the informal networks um, and who gave the, um, their all to help, uh, it was really a very moving story if we start unfolding it um, in this kind of everyday mundane reality. Um, even them, they did say, we don't know how long we are going to be doing this. This is too hard for us. Um, there, there, there must be an end. And in relation to the rest of the island, they said, well, yes, of course they tolerate because people come and go without any disruption to the, you know, the, 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 the life flows of the island. You don't know if things get difficult or if um, masses of, 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 of those um, <clears throat> arrivals actually uh, get, get trapped here. We don't know what's going to happen then. So we're also talking, yeah, not only about a complex situation, but a situation that changes, very dynamic, and it's very fragile, and uh, its moments that we try to capture and describe are, are, are transient, you know. It, it, it might change completely uh, in a few months, depending on how Europe uh, decides uh, to go. And, and, and things as, as they are now don't look very uh, optimistic. Not for, not for Greece, anyway. So um, I think uh, it's now time that we uh, wrap this event up. I would like to thank our panel, absent and present members, uh, for very different, very rich presentations, and to thank you all for coming here and contributing with your questions and just, uh, just listening to what um, uh, we have to say about uninvited arrivals. Thank you very much. <laughs>